Okay, I'm uh, Glenn, better known as Mr. Welch. Uh, I write stuff. I get paid to write a bunch of stuff. Most stuff people don't want to read because it's not gaming related, because it's history related. I wrote the Mr. Welch list. I'm working on the Mr. Player's Handbook. Uh, and uh, I'll write whatever you pay me to write. Uh, I'm Janet. I'm the co-founder of World Anvil. Apart from that, I am a role player, writer, uh, singer, and purveyor of world building advice. I'm Tom Knaus. I'm an RPG writer. I write predominantly for Frog God Games, and like Glenn, anyone else who is willing to pay me to write. And uh, and I'm also a golfer. Hi, I'm Andy. I'm project manager at Fawcett Games, and you guys have heard me babble a few times now, so you're good. Good morning. And hello, I am Dimitris, and I am a uh, not developer by morning and developer by night, and I code everything all dongle. All right, there are topics. Whatever you guys ready. Might as well get Game of Thrones out of the way first, because that's what people come for. Oh. Where do you even start on this? Because there's so many places to go with how bad this was. But I, I'll, I guess I'll start because I threw this topic out to PAX. Uh, you spent six to seven seasons of these characters being developed, and everything that got developed over those six to seven seasons got basically flushed down the toilet, and it's like we did a complete do-over. Um, so you, you train Arya to be this amazing assassin who can mimic people. And yes, at the beginning of season seven, she you know kills Walter Frey and all the Freys and all that. And it's like she forgot how to do all this. She suddenly you know vanishes. Yes, she kills the Night King. I get it, but it didn't seem to take too much of her training into a into a play. You know, yes, yeah, she did do the trick with the Obsidian Dagger. All right, I get it, but it just felt so. The character just felt so different. It felt like she wasn't the uber assassin she had been trained to be. And then Tyrion, who is like the man who drinks and knows things, and the man who outwitted Stannis Baratheon at the Battle of Blackwater, is now a bumbling idiot who just stumbles into every trap they could possibly lay down, seems to forget everything he knows, makes all these stupid ideas like, yes, the people will quickly turn against Cersei. No, they won't. They won't turn against her. Uh, it's just, oh my gosh, it was just so frustrating after all that. And yes, the Mad Queen, okay, they planted a few seeds, but expect the Mad Queen to go a little more gradual than just going full bore Looney Tune after one episode. I was just, ugh, horrible, 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 horrible. I feel like they they tried so hard to be terribly clever and subvert everybody's expectations. But the problem with this kind of epic fantasy is when you've spent that many seasons building up character arcs, you need to give them natural conclusions and you need to give them epic conclusions. And I felt like they were so busy trying to not do what we thought they would do that they actually just neutralized all of the drama in all of those character arcs, exactly like, like Tom just said, where you know they build Arya up to be this epic 
assassin and don't deliver. They build John up to be this amazing leader and then they don't deliver. And I felt with every single character or pretty much every character, they betrayed the character arc and they betrayed our expectations just to try and do something different. And I felt like that's one of the reasons it fell so flat, apart from the pacing, which was just whack. Like the pacing was ridiculous. They just needed to add the fast forward bit from the old VHS between a lot of the scenes. Right, but the like the battle scenes were so protracted, but without very much personal character moment. And then the personal character moments were so rushed. And I really felt like that balance was wrong. Like they could have done much better if they'd shown the battles as quick and confusing montages rather than this sort of entire episode of the Battle of Winterfell where by about 20 minutes in, Dimitri and I were sitting on the, co on the couch together going, well, it's awful. There's nowhere to go from here. It's just awful. We don't care anymore. The issue I had with the Battle of Winterfell is, you know, I'm heavily involved in theater and they use so many cost-cutting measures for such a big budget. You film it at night where you can't make anything out. The last time I've seen a movie like that done was the 13th Warrior. And that was to disguise the fact they only had 40 guys because they didn't have the budget. They didn't have any excuse for not showing us all or hardly anything in that battle. Yeah, I like. I I admit I like the Thirteenth Warrior. It's actually one of my favorite fantasy movies. I know it was a big flop, but yeah, exactly what Janet was saying. I mean, the whole Battle of Winterfell was so dark you couldn't see a blessed thing. And the whole thing with when Arya was sneaking through the crypt, I had no idea what was going on. I was just like, why is she going through this? What's the significance of this? I'm totally lost. I have no idea why why she's doing this. And one other thing too, another big I thought fail on the uh, the bells episode was all right. Here's Euron Greyjoy, which I absolutely loathe the character, not because he was evil, because he was so ridiculous. It was just like uh, here are the Sand Girls. Yeah, they're you know pretty. You know they overthrew a kingdom, and this dude just single handedly overpowers all of them and captures them. And yeah, nobody else can kill this dragon, but this guy can, you know, he, he can do it. And then he's got this barrage of these ballistas firing at these two dragons in episode before. And the final episode, they got one shot. This entire armada that had a whole barrage of these ballistas flying in the air now has one shot and misses and they're all toast. And that to me was just like so idiotic. I have to say, I've had to compare it to movies with the for, with the subject, what was it, the expectations where you just throw them out the window. It reminded me a lot of The Last Jedi, where you set up a scene and then you completely don't do anything with it, only to the nth degree. I mean, at least the 13th Warrior had the excuse of it was being sold from studio to studio. That's why it lost money. But this one, it's just, they were just... Like the uh, like I was joking around about the pitch meeting. They could have had four more episodes and it, and slowed it down and fixed the pacing. Well, you had the second episode and even the first episode, where not a heck of a lot really went on. It was just kind of like, all right, we're getting reintroduced to everybody. We're all having this big reunion, and then it's kind of like. All right, well, nothing happens. And now all of a sudden, instead of, you know, 
making as as we talked earlier the protracted battle of winterfell which was far too protracted you could have resolved a lot of the north story arcs in maybe three episodes if you just cut out a lot of the filler and cut down on the superfluous you know endlessly hacking the dead who just keep getting up anyway so right but the other problem was that it was never clear how big the forces of uh daenerys were because for example it looked suspiciously like all of the the warriors on horseback whose name i've currently forgotten dothraki thank you so much it looked like all the dothraki charged into battle and then died and then suddenly there were dothraki in king's landing and i was like where the crap did they come from yeah that was another one that was kind of baffling like hey i thought they were all wiped out we saw all those like uh flaming swords go out now they're back again <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing or that glorious moment where John was walking through the stricken King's Landing and Grey Worm was killing hostages. Um, and then Grey Worm, uh, John was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go see Danny about this. I have to have words with Danny about this. And then he walked up to the castle and suddenly Grey Worm was there. And I was like, but did you run? Yeah, continuity was not this season's strong point. Right, but it wasn't a long season. Yeah, and it's... I mean, they, they dropped the ball. They, they blew it in just every conceivable way. They had the story written for them. And, I mean, they completely forgot all the foreshadowing. You know, they, they tried to wrap up everything neatly with a ribbon. I got to admit, I did like the small council scene. That was strangely satisfying for me. But, I mean, it's just, they, they completely, they, were, they rushed it like they wanted to get on the Star Wars movie, which makes me not want to watch their Star Wars movie. Yeah, I see some ch comments here, too, about the entire military tactics were just god-awful. There was actually uh, some article about it, too, talking about why would you send your cavalry charging headfirst into, A, pitch darkness, and B, you have no idea what's out there, because um, you've done no scouting, you've done no reconnaissance, you know, and that was just kind of silly. And the same thing with the... the um, when they're approaching Dragonstone, and there's a there's an entire fleet sitting there ready to waylay them as they get there. Isn't there a scout? Can the dragons go a little higher in the air and check out what's around instead of just flying headfirst into? Yeah, we're we're just gonna go here. There's gonna be nobody here. It won't be a problem. Or have somebody at Dragonstone screaming, "Hey, there they are!" Not to mention the fact that Winterfell is supposed to be a fortress, and everybody goes out of the fortress. That was odd. Why the hell do you have a fortress? And also at King's Landing, they put the Golden Compass outside the walls. The point of the walls is they're a force multiplier. You put the people on top of the walls, not outside of the walls. We're going to be tearing this, this show apart for decades. It's going to go down in history as just the ultimate book. And the... Uh, just... It's so frustrating because we all watched it for so long and we, it was so good, in my opinion. Um, it started out so well, it did really nice things with the books, even when it diverged, I felt like it it captured things that maybe wouldn't have worked from the books and, and did them really well in a television setting. And then it just failed to deliver. It was so disappointing and I think that's why everyone's ragging on it because there was so much potential and we, we all feel betrayed. Well, Tywin Lannister died for nothing. Cool. 
that's the problem is like the first four seasons were fantastic and then they got off the book and then they said, okay, what do we do? Let's, let's subvert all the expectations. Let's throw out all the foreshadowing and character development and let's get onto another show. Cause I'm tired of doing this. I do have to admit that like uh, Glenn was saying, the scene with the small council was actually pretty satisfying. Uh, I actually sat at the end and says, wow, I really don't want this to end if this continues the way it's going like this. Instead of just, Instead of just wiping away the six and a half hours before that part where they're all, you know, interacting with each other. But uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was done. Just epic disappointment. I feel like the small council were the characters who were chosen to have endings. The other characters were not chosen to have endings. Um, and bizarrely, there was, again, there was so much character betrayal. So, for example, Samuel Tali spent the entire time saying, John is the one true king. John is Aegon Targaryen. John has to be king. And then suddenly he's like, or democracy, or this guy in a wheelchair. Also fine. You know, whatever. Um, and that was bizarre, particularly as once the 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 Grey Worm and his buddies had gone. Like there was no reason that John had to be exiled anymore. Uh, mm, plot holes, plot holes. I have to admit, some of the sketches parodying it are pretty funny. I got to find the video if you can put it up where it's uh, Brian crying her heart out to Tormund, who's sitting there making her cocoa and just listening. That's good. And the other two, the other thing too, when. Uh... At the end, when they're talking, Sam says, yes, how about democracy? And Tyrion goes, well, you know, Bran has had this great story. Bran was absent for an entire season. You did not see him once at all. And he's got a great story. I, I was just like, ah. But again, that was one of the reasons why it was frustrating to see him land on the throne, or at least the melted-shaped blur where the throne was supposed to be, um, because he hadn't been an active character. He was bait, and he was present with knowledge who wouldn't, and, and which he wouldn't share. Like he could have been an active character, but he wasn't. And that went that choice, then felt like again like a betrayal for the audience. It, it felt like a non sequitur. Yeah, I'll admit I had my money on hot pie. He had the best story, I think. They didn't talk about his chain of bakeries that he opened up across Westeros. I figured they were going to have him like a uh, cater the meeting and then he's like getting everything ready. Then you hear everybody pull weapons and he comes and everybody slaughters. So he just takes the throne. Right. Or a red wedding, but with pies. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the, the common folk finally get tired of all the nobles getting them killed. So I guess the next question, which kind of refers to um, what what Pex has written as well, is how do you not do this to your players? What, massively subvert their expectations? Yeah, but betray their expectations and betray betray um, sort of a sense of finality, betray what, what they're looking for around the table, the, the, the epic dimension. Asking the hard questions here, apparently. 
Well, I'm kind of... <laughs> I had a uh, surprise guest at midnight last night, so I'm trying to stay... I'm trying to wake up. A surprise what, sorry? Guest. Oh. Canine or feline? Uh, no, it was a guy I've been playing phone tag with for a week. I mean, I guess it has to, setting up your player's ending, it depends on how you set up the, the start. You know, what do they want? What are the character motivations? You know, what are they expecting out of the adventure if you you know, uh, set up everything for like, in this case, if they were playing the, uh, you know, Song of Ice and Fire and we're getting ready for the big battle and you decide to, uh, you know, the players are chomping at the bit to go fight and you decide to end it with a mutually agreed upon uh, negotiated position, your players are going to be a little bit disappointed. You got to read your players. Absolutely. But um, I think there's, particularly with things like the grimdark genre, which, you know, arguably Game of Thrones is, uh, and I know that that is an argument. Um, I think making it feel final without making it feel twee is a real delicate balance. One thing I, I like to think is that I try to keep it very, um, the player's impact on the world localized so they feel that they're impacting, that they're actually having a true impact uh, as opposed to giving them a broad, you're out there to save the world, which just feels so artificial because then you go to the, the inevitable question, why aren't there people more powerful than me? Why am I the guy saving the world? So, but if you have it where they're, you know, getting involved in, you know, determining the fate of this town or maybe even a small region, um, that they, you know, that meets their expectations as opposed to, giving them a grand epic scale that's sometimes often very hard to satisfy. You know, yes, we can save the townsfolk and now I feel satisfied as opposed to your actions have changed the course of history. Sure, absolutely. I mean, um, managing expectations through managing scope is a, is a really, really good point. I think renown is very good for this as well. Um, and it's a very good tool that you can use for your players. So their deeds follow them and you know that their actions, they know that their actions have consequences. Uh, it's also nice for preventing people from being murder hobos, because if people roll into a town and steal shit and are murder hobos, then they get a reputation for that, and then people will treat them accordingly. So it's, it's a nice way not only to make them feel empowered, but to make them feel like their actions really have consequences. Oh, I despise murder hobos. <laughs> right, exactly. But honestly, you can, I feel like that's something you can like you can cut it in the bud just by being like right you killed this guy you've just been arrested yes hundreds of his angry relatives are now outside your door wanting to seek justice you know there's a lot of games that actually give the players some sort of purchase in how you can affect it. Some of them were good, like Seventh Sea. Some of them were awful, like uh, God Underground. Yeah, that was the one. And you know, I was like, you have to find out what the players are looking for. Yeah, you want to. You don't want to. You know, hand feed them everything they want. But if the players are going to be wanting to, you know, be the big power players, you, like in Birthright, you you know, you might want to switch the system around. 
I think an also key thing too is understanding the feel of the players and what they're looking for. You know, some players do want to be, um, I don't want to say it murder hobos. I'm trying to think of a better expression of that. They want to be the ones in power or they want a certain style of game. You know, they're accustomed to hack and slash, going to the dungeon. Uh, yeah, there's riches here. I'm going to go get them and that sort of thing. Or as opposed to the players or the characters who want to be like, um, you were talking about earlier, they're the ones who negotiate a settlement. Maybe that's what they're looking for. So you have to have a good understanding of what the players are, are looking for in a particular game to meet their expectations. If they are hack and slash and, and you end up, like you said, negotiating a peace treaty with the orcs, uh, they may not be too happy with that. But, you know, and again, it depends on how you bridge the whole story. Maybe the, some of the orcs are, uh, I don't want to call them reformist orcs, but they're kind of like, trying to change their ways or, or, or mend the way they do things. So, One of the ways I've seen this done really well in hindsight. So, for example, in... Because um, in World Anvil, for example, right, you, you don't set um, campaigns in a world. Sorry, you don't set worlds in a campaign. You set campaigns in a world. So you build your world and then you you build campaigns within that. Um, and one of the ways I've seen this done so well is that people will use a prior campaign to build canon and build history for their worlds. So players who've played a campaign will then explore the world in a later campaign and find out, oh, this forest is named after my previous character or there's a legend about my previous character or this kind of thing. So in a sort of longer term, you can you can really embed them into the world, really make them canon. And it's a beautiful way to make them feel really powerful and to inform that campaign. It's not an easy, it's not a quick fix, but it can be a really, really effective way to do it. Yeah, play what you know. That's that's the best way to for anybody, for a DM to set a storyline is just build upon what's already been established. Even if the players don't know it, at least you're familiar with it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, if they're looking lost, you can also uh, feed into tropes and this kind of thing, because then the players will know, they sort of start to understand what you're driving at for them, I think, as well, and they'll they'll get on board. No, I haven't seen the last three seasons, so I am staying out of it and trying not to listen to anything about Game of Thrones. I'm I'm hiding until next topic. We stopped talking about Game of Thrones about four minutes ago. Really? Oh, well, see, I wasn't listening because I was trying to avoid the whole Game of Thrones thing. But if you were avoiding, how would you know when we stopped talking about it? Well, that's the problem. Apparently, I didn't. <laughs> so I missed that part. What are we talking about? We've been chatting about uh, how to make your players feel empowered at your table. Oh, well, heck. That's even my topic. Personally, my, my favorite way to make them feel empowered is to try to weave stories that focus on their character. So I like to run long campaigns. So maybe a story has a particular thing that's focused on one character and then the next minor arc will focus on another character and by letting them kind of 
be the focus. It encourages them to be more involved. The more involved they are, the more empowered they seem to be. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. It's really important, in my opinion, to get players to figure out their character's motivations early on, because that's a great way to make them feel really involved with the story as well. And you can feed into yeah, that. Yeah. You can you can give them give them crumbs that will draw them along. Yeah. It, it's really about making, kind of leading the horse to water. You want them to feel empowered because they think it's their idea. So how do you get them to realize that they're empowered? And right. for me, it's, it's always been about trying to, to create stories that get them so involved that they get there on their own. Every now and then you find some player who just doesn't seem to, to utilize their character well. And sometimes that takes a little bit more work, leading. But most of the time, I think you can honestly just weave stories that hooks them in. The more they're hooked in, the more they want to do, the more they do, the more empowered they feel. I think I I think it's a really good point. Um, I uh, I had an interview with Devon Rue the other day, and one of the little nuggets of wisdom she dropped, which I feel is really relevant to this, is that she um, she uses the size of map that she gives to the players to signal to them the scope of the campaign that she's running. So she won't give them a world map necessarily. She'll give them a region map or even like uh, a county map, right? And that helps them understand, okay, so go off and do things in this area. This is the area for now. And it helps give them empowerment without accidentally running off to the other continent and setting all her plans out of motion, right? Um, so I think that's a that's a really nice little tip, is just to, to, to give them the scope and within that encourage them to be free and explore and do, do everything that they want to do. I like that. My only thing with it is, is that I find that anytime you try to come up with a, we're only going to be here, they always go somewhere else anyways. Anytime you try to come up with something like, oh, we're going to do this thing. Like, that's the plan. This is what we're doing. They never do that. Players just never do the things that you think they're going to do or try to stay in the box you created. So I gave up on boxes long ago. Even I, but I like the idea that the box is really a map. But I still feel like players are going to find some way to, to go off the map because they do that. Players are actually squirrels. Or rabid cats. I'm not sure which. Right. Really lazy, but then prone to the midnight zoomies. Oh, dude. I love my players, and I've had a lot over the years, but the one thing I learned in two and a half decades of, G of GMing is that anytime you think you have an idea what they're going to do, that's not what they're going to do. I've had tables go over a decade, and the players still come up with things. I'm like, where? Why? Okay. I guess that's what we're doing. Cool. <laughs> because it's fun that way. It is. And actually, I love it when they come up with something I didn't think of. Like, I give cookies for that. Like, I will come up with something to give them if they come up with something that I'm just sitting here going, what the, f why, how, who, what, why would you say these things? 
Yeah, one thing I think that also makes the players feel empowered is the ability to use their either character skills or their own personal skills. Um, some people are, you know, very good at fast talking. So they like it when you present encounters where they can use that character skill or their own personal skill to maximum effect or the character who is I got abilities to, you know, jump over things and present those kind of challenges. So I think that's something else that also tends to engage the players is when they feel that, hey, I'm unique. I'm the only character here who can do that particular thing or yes. the only character who's got that kind of skill. This is my moment to shine and people like to shine. Yes. They we love are. that. We are. We are. Oh, we so, had a no, master in uh, we're playing Deadlands, and he was talking about you know unique character skills and of all things that we messed the uh, was a weird wasted west because it was all things that the guy wasn't expecting was one of the players to know where the location of the secondary bottling uh, plant for Dr Pepper was wrecked the game. Uh, see, for me, it wouldn't wreck the game. It would just be the weirdest side quest ever. All right, go figure that out. He, we went on this massive uh, trek to Dublin, Texas, instead of uh, Waco, and he had dropped a uh, hundred uh, megaton nuclear bomb on it. Uh, when by the wow. time he got there, because he really didn't want us to do that, and Dublin was only is like sixteen hundred people. Wow! Because we were supposed to go to Waco, and he goes, "We're going to go get the Dr Pepper bottling plant," and one yeah, guy goes, but... "Wait, there's a secondary plant." Oh my gosh. <laughs> players. You, you players crack me up. I mean, this is, we're Texans. We're, we're taught where all the Dr. Pepper plants are made in, in elementary school. Uh, it's, it's on the quiz, isn't it? Yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually not making that up. <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, you gotta, uh, granted, that's a player using really obscure meta knowledge. Uh, in game, but since it was supposed to be based on real life, I guess that wasn't too bad. That's hilarious, incidentally. Um, I think the other thing about uh, giving players uh, all opportunities, so remembering that, yeah, you've got a healer who you know doesn't necessarily shine in battle or you've got a rogue who really wants to fast talk and making sure that you throw them into situations where everything can, can everyone can shine which is is what uh what was touched on earlier already yes and i think it's remembering also the individual players in what they like clerics don't always do well in battle but they're also not just simply healers there's other things that they may do that can help them shine or and it's something that sometimes, especially in longer campaigns, if you don't have them actually flat out tell you, you can try to figure out, which is what's their motive, what's, what drives their character. That may have they nothing may have to do with the story arc that you came up with, but maybe they're trying to come up with money because they're taking care of their family back home. That is How do you pull that in? Sorry? Yes. yes. Sure, it's okay. Uh, that is a very good way to, in fact, know what your players are going to do and drive the story without them realizing. When it comes to the personal stories of the players, what they don't understand is that although they are their own stories, most of the times they know the least about them because that is where you can play with them and make sure that you are driving the story anyway. 
So one of the ways that I can make and I make my players feel very uh, involved and feel that they really are having an impact to the world and to their story is to play on those personal arcs. Because although they believe they know the story, there are so many secrets that you can hide in their stories that will make a massive impact on themselves. So when the player effectively tells you, yes, I have a mother and a father and my big brother is, for example, I don't know, like a, a blacksmith kind of thing that he makes weapons for the king kind of thing. Okay, that is what he's known, that is his reality. What he might not know is that his brother is also, for example, the courtesan of the king kind of thing. Or a secret agent or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And that is where it becomes really personal because it's about their family. And suddenly they are super invested because that's your family. And also everything goes because you're building the story and they are looking every word you're saying about every word you're saying. You guys are all so smart. I think we're just devious, which is totally what a GM has to be, in my opinion. Well, well yeah. <laughs> To be fair, I'm using my psychology degree for my storytelling, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he pulls no punches. Good. <laughs> I love Pex's comment in the chat, GMs tell the best lies. It's totally true. Because there's the there's the world as as your character knows it, and then there's the world as the GM knows it, and often they're really not the same thing at all. I do not consider them lies because actually it, they are your own creations. So you yeah. do not lie, you just alter reality and that is the trick behind it. You can alter the reality at any given point because you are it. Yeah. The best DM gives the players all the illusion of choice they want and gives them more of an illusion the more they want it. And on that topic, of godhood and essentially illusion of choice. And uh, we were watching Lucifer yeah. lately. And it was very interesting because one of the biggest conundrums about Lucifer is uh, for Lucifer as being the devil essentially and written also by uh, an amazing author who knows how to manipulate this trick. Uh, the question is always, is this my own doing or is this what my father, AKA God, makes me do right what am i being manipulated in and what am i doing myself and not even realizing exactly and that is the whole trick with uh storytelling that the player will never know so in many ways it is your choice of how it's going to be it might feel like you are making plans and i'll give an example like that's a very good example so a storyteller organize a campaign and say my players will go north and they will find the town and with this town that will happen and that is fine until your players decide to go east. Yeah, but what they don't know is that the town can literally teleport east because you want it to be there. And, you know, if their map was wrong or that's another town and you essentially re remake your story to fit that name under that name of the town. And that is where the illusion of choice comes in. They think they've made a choice. They might even think that out of spite, essentially they change your plans. But in reality, they have no choice because it's the matrix. Everything changes around them if you want to. Yeah, there's really a, something in the way the GM tells the story. I actually put something in the chat room that reminded me from when I was an English major. And one of one of the stories I found really fascinating was a story called Benito Sereno that was by uh, Herman Melville. And what happened in the story is that an American ship comes upon this Spanish ship and a Spanish slave ship. 
And because it's told from the mind frame of the American captain in the 1840s, 1830s, all the events he's looking at, he's got a rational explanation for them, how he's explaining it. And the best scene is one where the, um, the person who laid the Red the Rebellion is shaving the captain with a Spanish flag, using that as like the barber's, um, whatever you call that thing that they put on you. And he's got a razor while he's shaving him. And he's like, wow, isn't that very nice how this person is shaving him? Not realizing, of course, because it's from his perspective that he's holding the straight razor to his throat not to give up what's going on here. So that is something that I always take in as a GM. That's the way I frame the story or the way I show it to you, knowing what your expectations are, that you're probably going to buy what I'm telling you because you've been trained or your character thinks in a particular way. And that's something that you can also use to your advantage as the GM. Give them just enough rope. Always. It's always about giving them enough rope that they hang themselves. And you get to do that wonderful thing where you go, do you remember that thing you did seven games ago that you thought was just kind of a ha-ha blow-off? Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, that. Because they always look at you. And it's why I tell people all the time, it's not about spending hours and hours of prep time. It's about the notes you take in the game. Because all those little notes and the little things that they did and pulled and what they've, they've done, that's how you're going to loop all that back in. And it makes it, it makes look like you're seamless. That's so true. I think there's, uh, there's the other side to this, though, because um, a lot of world builders I've talked to, I, I do a lot of interviews as part of World Anvil, and um, I was talking to uh, a man called Dr. Trent Hergenrader, who is a, a professor of world building, essentially, in, in the States. And one of the things he said is the number one world building plot hole that he sees is that the world is built for the characters and it doesn't otherwise have life in it. So it doesn't otherwise have, have movement. So when I was talking to uh, Devon about um, what's her number one best experience about being a GM or most revealing experience about G being a GM, she said she laid down a plot hook for her party and the party said, no, nah, I don't want to do that right now. We'll come back later. And so they came back later and some other bunch of adventurers had done it for them because they're not the only adventurers in the world. And I think as well as give, empowering them and giving them a sense that they are important, that they can change the world, it's important to remind your players that this is a world that moves with or without them. This is a world in which things happen and pieces are in motion, stories are in motion all around them. So if they don't accept the plot hook, somebody else will. And that makes them reconsider their actions very often and take their actions more carefully. It's, it's something we discussed also on our discussion uh, on our um, talk we had in uh, Finland. In Trakon, yeah, in that's Trakon, true. Uh, which was the fact that one of the things that uh, you should always be doing in your stories, regardless of what's happening and where your uh, players would, would like to go, it is to have a plots upon plots in your world that will drive anyway, regardless of the players, and of course, if the players involved are involved, they can make difference that may maybe even necessarily reverberate and change effectively the whole chain of events. But in reality, the world will feel more dynamic if changes have happened when they come back. So if they have essentially a trade hub that normally they go there to get equipment, maybe the next time they go there, the equipment is not there because the trade routes are blocked. Or for example, maybe it's 
destroyed because war happened and they never cared about the war. But the war, you know what, is happening and the war will continue happening regardless of what they're doing unless they take action against it or for it kind of thing. Sure. So they choose which stories to engage in. But the fact is that stories will continue to unfold around them. But I think that, that will this make is... them also more... Sorry, I'm really sorry. No, it's, I was just going to say this is all very, very true. Yeah, I think that will make them also more engaged with the story and with the campaign because the truth of the matter is that many camp many um, storytellers want to have one plot yeah. and railroad people, but as um, uh, Mandy... That's Mandy, right? Andy. It's Andy. GM Andy. Oh, okay. Ah, sorry. Okay. No, 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 no. You guys are fine. Yeah. So There's... as Andy said, uh, it, the funniest thing is that storytellers are think that the players will actually follow what uh, you want them to do. Right. But the matter is that you don't have to make them. Do no. Anything. You just have to give them. The so the other they... aspect of this that helps you as a GM when you start doing it this way, where the NPCs will go in and they're gonna go and do what they're doing, whether you interfere or not. If the NPCs are gonna blow up that building and you guys choose not to do something with it, then they blew up the building and there are consequences to the building blowing up, right? The other aspect that this puts in is a sense of, of time and that time is precious and that they have to make decisions based on time, which a lot of, especially if I find newer players that are very used to video games, well, if you don't want to deal with that side plot right now, who cares? You can deal with it later. There's no consequence to getting to it when you feel like it. When you have set a world in motion where the non-player the non-player aspects of the world continue with or without them, right? When those things happen anyhow, when other adventurers get involved, whatever it's going to be, then they have to start picking and choosing where they go, how they spend their time, what they do with their time. And it adds a, an entire complexity to their problem solving, which can be really fascinating, especially if they have multiple things to deal with at the same time. Definitely. And then I think it um, it helps characters develop their, it helps players develop their character because all of a sudden they, they need priorities and those priorities are determined by the, the character motivations, which theoretically everyone makes in session one or pre-session or for session zero, however you do it. But generally, I think most players, and I'm included in that, take a minute or two to warm up into their character. So by season, sorry, by session three or session four, you can, you can start pressuring them to make decisions and see how true those decisions remain to their motivations. And if they don't, then how those motivations maybe change. Well, and that's actually a, a big thing. Um... Especially, I think that players who warm up into their characters, I'm one of those, I, I like the fact that you are, they are very interested in developing their character. And you have a different type of player who will pre-plan all of their things. Like, they have figured out their next 20 levels already, like, before the first game. And it intrigues me because if the story is done well, then that throws those people because they're looking at it going, this is where I thought my character was going to go, but these things happen. And now my character has a different focus, a different issue it's trying to deal with. And so that's changed. Character leveling should actually tie into what's going on in the story. Characters should grow and change with that story. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, as a GM, I, I'm, I'm a mean GM. Dimitri knows this. Um, <laughs> 
he's carried enough cursed items to know that when I'm displeased. But um, as a GM, I think it's important, certainly in my opinion, to make sure that that leveling makes sense. So if somebody has been hacking and slashing and suddenly say they're playing Pathfinder and they want to take levels in persuasion, well, why? They haven't developed persuasion. They've developed stabbing. So they can take levels in stabbing. They can't take levels in persuasion. Do you know what I mean? Like, it has to make sense. And the characters are built from their experiences. They should be. And some games push that. Um, of course, Foss's games do. You have to use those skills to raise the skills. But I do that even in non-FASA games or games that don't technically, according to the books, require that. You have to tell me how you learned Elven if you want to take that as a new language. You have to tell me why all of a sudden you have a rank in armorsmithing if you've never mentioned it before. I expect I my players to to level up appropriate for what their characters are actually doing. Totally. And if a player comes to you and says, well, look, I want to increase my, my strength uh, from a stat point of view, you'd be like, all right, how about when we're doing downtime, you're doing exercises, you're bench pressing, you're doing cardio. If you want to learn a new language, how about we make sure that you get a book at some point that you can start reading and you can start learning. And I will, I will tailor the story to help you achieve these things, I will throw NPCs at you. I will, I will help because as as GMs, we want to help players tell good stories. That's yeah, why we're all around it, the table. It doesn't make any sense to just make their life hard. You have to offer something that will make the game engaging, and they will be happy to play it. Yeah, exactly. And and give them like prescribe a course of action essentially, or prescribe possible courses of action. Yeah. Discuss with them. I find it that sometimes discussing how this can happen, like almost like having a a method of, how do you call this method in English? Uh, when you ask questions, to get answers. The from, Socratic. Yeah, so essentially, sorry, we call it, it, it's from Socrates, but we call it differently in Greek. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, we call it actually the giving birth method, if you want to, a direct translation. Interesting. Because effectively the idea is that you're giving birth by asking the questions, they make the answers. I think that's the idea. So, um, what? No, I'm just giving so birth is way more painful than a conversation. I love that Greece, Greece went there. Yeah, fair enough. It was <laughs> written by men, to be fair. Yeah, so, there we go. Um, We're getting sidetracked. Yes. But the whole idea is that um, if you want them to be engaged with your story, they have to feel that, in part, this world is something that is there to serve them and serve their story. And asking them and talking to them probably in a post-op of a session kind of thing okay that's what you want to do how do you think that this would have happened how would your player have been able to in fact achieve it like as a learn that skill or anything like that yeah okay so pex is busy uh posting posting the things we're supposed to be talking about now and one of those is campaign managers and what we can offer them as content creators so um, I'm going to jump in and drop the only advert. I, I will drop in that whole thing, which is World Anvil has just released a new campaign manager for everyone. And part of that offering, so when I say for everyone, it's for players and GMs and audiences, but it's also for all systems and all genres. In potentia. In potentia, right. OK, yes. we're, we're just about to start building all the character sheets for all the things. Yeah. <laughs> But um, one of the really beautiful things about it, and one of the things I've been really enjoying about it, is that for the characters, for the players, there's not just an ability to marry, marry, blah, 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 blah. sorry, it's supposed to be my day off and my brain is melting. Um, 
you, you can't just manage your character from a, a stats perspective and a grit perspective, but you can post social media style. So you can develop your character and your character's relationships with other people, which I think is massively important. To be absolutely fair with you, when I first created this, it was not, I was not thinking about the social media aspect of it. I was thinking of the fact that people tend to forget that we think in trains of thought. We essentially we do not have a structured way of thinking most of the time. We just have ideas after ideas after ideas. Yeah. And a stream was the best way of actually representing that. Literally a stream of consciousness. Yes, a stream of consciousness, exactly. Uh, the fact that it developed to become effectively a way for people to be able to comment on that or necessarily discuss it is a different issue altogether kind of thing. Yeah. But, yeah. All right, I'm going to be dumb for a minute. What do you guys mean by campaign managers? Like, I know what a GM is. Uh, okay, okay, so you guys... So you guys Let me give you an example of how this looks like, actually. Because I've seen your guys' site, and I actually even got, like, an account. And I love your guys' site. I will say that. I really do. I think it's awesome. So is that what you're talking about, is things like that? As far as what a campaign manager is. Check out this page because the web has changed a lot. I have just made the release that I was working on for, for four months without an update. So five. Five. Five months. Yeah, five months. Um, Lost stack of time. Yeah, so we used to have... Project Heroes. We used to have um, a campaign manager that, that spawned off the world-building side of World Anvil. So if you were doing homebrew, however deep you wanted to go into homebrew, you could write enough articles to cover the things you wanted to do. You could make your stat blocks... If you wanted to go full homebrew, you could make an entire new system and an entire new world. And if you just wanted to dabble, you can use the SRD, which is already in there, and um, whatever you wanted to homebrew from it. And then there was some kind of campaign functionality. So what we've done is we've made that way more advanced. You can now set up a session really, really quickly. You can link in um, soundtracks. You can link in... Um, articles really easily. You can create for your players, if you want to, a law base where they can read the articles that you say they, they should slash can read in order to be informed about your world. About your campaign, in fact, that's the difference that yeah. um, we found that uh, creating a world is quite an over, um, let's say, a crazy thing. Like you cannot ask your players, oh, here you are, that's my world, read everything about it so you can play my game. So the idea was, here you are, That these are the 10, 15 articles that you should read about. Like, also, literally a primer or an introduction to a campaign like Pathfinder used to do, like, essentially creating the primer for the players. And that's how it works. Um, in effect, the storyteller can choose which articles he be, he believes that the players should be reading about and throw them at, uh, throw these at them, essentially. And I think that one of the biggest differences that we've done compared to other people who have campaign managers, because we're not the only campaign manager here, um, is that the heroes which is the name of the project changed the way that people understand a campaign because so far all the tools were about the storyteller being able to create their story or effectively have the tools that they need to run the play the game heroes changed that and apart from in fact of course allowing the storyteller to have the tools that they need to run the campaign uh, thought of the fact that you know what in a table there might be five or six people and of them minus one the people are not storytellers, they are players. So 
we create a system that the player is coming first. And that was the idea. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of when you mentioned it. Uh, you know, except we have a lot better technology now to, to make that easier rather than just filling out chart after chart after chart. See, I'm old. I still have a notebook and, and physical books 90% of the time. I have been trying to get better at using because there is so much really neat technology out there to help GMs to help with this type of stuff. And I'm still, I think I'm just too old and I'm still struggling with moving to, because like I said, I, I've looked at your site. It, it, it has been a while, so I'll have to relook at it now that you've made some changes and things. There's so much really cool things out there and ways to electronically enhance your game and interact with your players. But I'm still, I think, just old and struggling with getting better at using it. <laughs> you're, an um, you're an analog person in a digital world. I, I actually am. And it's kind of sad because there's some really cool stuff out there. But literally, I still have a notebook and physical books. And sometimes I'll get something out of a PDF because I do have PDFs and I like PDFs as far as, oh, I like this one thing on this one page and I can pull up the one thing on the one page and then I print it and I throw it in the notebook. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm apparently old. <laughs> do you play uh, in real time around a table, like with real people face to face? 90% of the time, I'm getting a little bit better at uh, using Discord and playing on Discord. And I now play in four. Actually, like half of the games that I either GM or play in. So four of them are now on Discord. So I'm, so I'm working on it slow. So. I'm only face. Oh. Sorry, go ahead, Glenn. Well, I said I'm just only face to face. I'm currently playing D&D and Call of Cthulhu, but I don't think I've ever played a game online. I'm seriously well, envious. Okay. Glenn, Glenn, we'll get you in a game. I will I will come up with something. We'll play Deadlands because freaking you and I would love it. And I can get other people to play Deadlands. We'll play Deadlands on Discord. Then That'd I can great. use my real voice. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> I know, right? Like it, oh, we'll play we'll play Deadlands. But I'm getting better at that. But like using Roll 20, I'm still struggling with using World Anvil, things like that. I'm still struggling with that. But I'm getting better at being able to use Discord. But yeah, four of my games are in person, and within the last six months or so to a year, I finally have now like four games that are on Discord. So it's been a very slow process for me. So I, I got you, Glenn. I got you back. You and I are old. We'll, we'll have notebooks together. It'd be great. Oh, no. I, I like my books. You can't, I, you can't read a Kindle in bed. No, I see. I, I, see, I can't do that. Like, I have PDFs. But I can't read the PDFs. I, I read the book. And then if there's something I like specifically out of a PDF or out of a book, I'll pull up the PDF, find that page, and print it rather than trying to hold the book in the scanner because it never gets flat enough. That's what I like about PDFs. They're flat. But I will get you. We'll do a Discord game, and we'll get you on Discord, and we'll get you to play. Okay. Well, just let me know. Now. Yeah, we'll have to, it, right now my nights are so stupid, but can you do day games ever? I'm currently refurbishing a house, so it'd have to be on a Saturday probably. Okay, we'll try to do like a Saturday morning or afternoon because I have a Saturday night game. Yeah, day job uh, kind of 
restricts the gaming and then Sunday it does. Call Cthulhu, no, which, but I will find some other players. We'll pick a Saturday. It'll probably have to be in July because I'm traveling most of June for work. Oh, that's fair. I've got to, you know, hopefully my house will be fixed by then. <gasps> oh, dude, my AC just broke. And then they told me that I have to replace the entire, like, furnace, everything, because everything's too old. So well, I get you. Uh, the house is from 78. We've got some wiring work done, and they found all the wiring was aluminum. <laughs> that's okay. All the wiring in my house is black. Which is wrong, because it should be red, white, and black, but it's all black, so it's an interesting, fun game. And I know enough about wiring that it makes me mad. But anyhow, back to World Anvil and this whole um, manager thing. I have a question for you guys about it, because you guys are experts in it. How do those of us who are old, old school, analogs, get better at interacting with some of the neat new cool technology like what you guys are doing well there's two answers to that the first is choose the right technology because some things are more difficult than others and i will say that world anvil is going through a massive user experience update right now because uh we've been we've been up for 18 months we have one coder which is demetrius um and we are still in beta. So part of part of our sort of finalizing of Weld Anvil is um, really going through the user experience and making sure everything is easier to use, the interface is cleaner, it's faster. So by the end of that, essentially, if you can use something like Facebook, you can use Weld Anvil. That's what we're going for. Well, you can use Weld Anvil as a player if you can right. use Facebook. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> but um, essentially, we, we want to make it as straightforward as as something like that and as clean and as easy to use. I would say one thing, which I think it's important. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue with your second point, my love. That's all right. Um, the second thing I would say is once you've found something that you like, it's just getting used to it. It really is just getting used to it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There are people who do one-on-one -on -one live tutorials. There are people who, who can help you. Dimitri and I offer walkthroughs and we have an amazing help channel and we have tutorials online there, there's always help if you need Literally, stuff. if you come on any of our Saturday streams at, what time is it, PST? Uh, 12 o'clock PST. 12 o'clock PST every Saturday. Uh, if you have a question, I will always answer it anyway, like right. on the stream online. But um, I would say something uh, here, which is uh, quite important. Technology is there to help you do what you're doing better and easier. Okay, and that is something that people don't understand. You do not have to migrate to something if it will make your life harder. But having said that, every new tool has some getting used to time. It has a learning curve. Exactly. And it's the same thing for any system, for example, any RPG system you play, you make an investment of time for you to acquire a new tool or a new way of doing things that you find interesting. And that's how it works. Uh, World Anvil is not different than that. And also World Anvil, I have to admit, it's not the easiest tool because it's not made for people who want something simple. For me, honestly, before World Anvil, notebooks worked. And my problem with notebooks were that notebooks are getting lost. Also, I wrote a lot. And notebooks cannot be easily searched. Yeah. And that's why I built World Anvil. Or cross-referenced. Yeah. That was exactly. always my problem. So I was <laughs> I even I used to write so I'm a I'm a writer as well. I mentioned this. Um I would write, you know, these massive um Google documents that were full of world building information, and because I couldn't cross-reference them easily. I would end up with this horrific problem where the information would morph 
through the document. So it would end up being contradictory because I couldn't cross-reference things properly. I would end up writing things twice and the second time they would be different. And then I would end up with confusing canon that I couldn't follow. And that's where something like Wild Anvil really, really does come in handy. And eventually it is, it does make it easier to use. <gasps> Tom Knaus is also a dinosaur. That's exactly Absolutely, that. I'm probably the oldest one here, actually. So. So, that kind of so uh, uh, well done. Hold for a very long time. They have the ability to a store it safely and b access it quickly. If you're playing, for example, don't know like any of uh, of the campaigns that D and D fifth edition is doing right now, which most people are actually just starting right now, and most of the content is already there, that might not be the best solution for you. It is as simple as that. But if you are building your own world, if you are a passionate uh, homebrewer and you love creating your own worlds and you do not want your world to uh, your work to be lost, and you want to find it easily, that's where World Anvil comes handy. And it might take you a bit of time to understand how it works, but once you do, the system and the ideals that are used are the same everywhere, as simple as that. So all you have to do is just, you know, invest the time. If if this is something that you really want and you it really it's a really a real need for you, as simple as that. And I want to say this again: you do not have to use digital tools if you do not need them. In many cases, this this will be the case. If you are building something that is very big and your simple brain or one notebook cannot hold, it might be time for you to move to something that can actually do that for you. Right. Get the tool to do the job that you need, whatever tool that is. So I have a question. So for using this World Anvil, like say I'm like a designer or I am a GM. Well, I'm a designer, but say I'm the GM and I want to create a whole set of um, variant rules. Is there a system or an ability for the players to then log into my rules so they can share it or use them as well? So, first question, do you want your rules to be generally private or not? Uh, private, just home, home game. game. Okay, so if it is for a home game, you want to keep them private, all you need to do is in fact make them subscribers to your world and say to the, essentially go to the uh, World Anvil interface very simply and say, this article can be read by the group called My Players. And as long as the player logs into that article, uh, logs into World Anvil, they will have access to that article specifically. Make sense? If it's public, if it's public, it's even easier. Sorry. Yeah, makes sense. So for public worlds, it's literally as easy as writing an article and then giving them the link to your world, and they have access to everything. If you want to keep it private, then it's a matter of them creating accounts, you putting them into a group, and then assigning that group to the to the article or to the map or to the timeline or even essentially markers on a map because the map can be public, but you can have, for example, private markers like my DM nodes and private articles, uh, private markers called, for example, things to be revealed to my players kind of thing and public uh, markers called, you know, the things they know already kind of thing. Right, you can even do it on a player by player basis. So you can give um, special access to the character with history knowledge to the history articles and special knowledge for the character with medicine knowledge to the medical articles and they don't have to read the things that they don't know about which means that you get much more realistic in-game knowledge exchange for example. 
Wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I'm so old dinosaur. I remember having to give out copies of stuff and paper, and the only place you can get a photocopy was a library. So. Yeah, and we paid 10 cents a picture or a page. Wow, wow. I think I paid a nickel. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a little younger than you, I think. So we paid 10 cents a page for black and white copies. Right, but how yep, often yep. do your players then lose those or feed them to the dog? Well, then they're on their own. Right, exactly. I only do it once. <laughs> and you you got to take them back as soon as they get finished reading them. No, oh, no, no, no. I let them keep them, but then they're in charge of their own. So, you see, what I used to do for my players is that I would buy those binders yeah. for my players, and they would have the character sheet in there, and I would give them things, and they would end up, literally, guys, I'm not even kidding, by the end of our biggest campaign, they had about 175 pages worth of uh, handouts and of information and photos and things like that. And it was crazy. And you know what happened one day? One of the guys uh, changed house, and they forgot to actually get them with them. And that was it. We're doing about four years of a campaign, uh, information that people cherished and they essentially embellished and they made beautiful and they were just lost like that. And that's what I wanted to never happen again, essentially, when I started World Anvil. Yeah, that's why you made World Anvil in the first place, was because you didn't want to lose those notes anymore. Like, Dimitri would sit and reminisce with his friends in Greece about their campaign that they ran for four years together. And then they they forgot details, and there's nowhere where they could check them. This Just to be clear, stuff. these four years were my university years. We're talking about uh, six to eight hours of gaming every day. Not like, oh yeah, we're watching, we're sitting down every week once for some hours. We're talking about hardcore role playing. We're doing more role playing than university. It is a miracle you got a degree. <laughs> I got four of them, but still. <laughs> Six to eight hours back when I was a teenager, we did a 72 hour stint. My God, I, oh, I cannot do that. Oh, God. In the old days, yeah. Where you'd go all weekend because you were in college and you could. Back yeah. when you had Joe Cola on the, the, the shelf, it was easy. Yes. Who needs My, Nowadays, it's four to six. That's it. That's all I do at one particular set. It. You know what, Andy? I'm really surprised because four to six was actually something that is something I would like to be doing. But most of the people I'm playing right now, or I'm trying to play with, they cannot do more than two or three hours. Like the the focus what? time. What? Yeah, you can't even. You can't. Okay, because the way gaming works is it's 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 very social. For the first half hour to forty five minutes, is literally everyone just chit chatting and catching up on their week or two weeks since you last got together. I absolutely agree with you. So that's not even a question. And that's what I'm saying that I'm really surprised because the younger generation does not do that at all. And I found once and again that we're saying, oh, man, it's okay. We can do possibly three hours. And I was like, what do you mean? Like in three hours, nothing will I, happen. We're going to spend 30 minutes just beginning and then 30 I, minutes dropping up. Right. No, see, like I will do a three hour for a convention because I'm going to sit there. I'm going to say hi and we're going to go. Right. Because there's no chit chat time overall. I can do a three-hour convention block, but as far as an actual game, no. But that's in one shot as well, right? It's not like part of your campaign. It's not like a, no. The, the yeah. convention is a one shot. It's a sit exactly. down at the table and let's try something. I can exactly. do that in three. Yeah, not that, that, less, but three. Yeah. If no, it's a campaign, you it's four hours minimum. That's it. I, if you can't, can if then they don't want to play. I don't. I don't know how you could do that. I completely agree with you. And that is the thing that uh, people don't understand that in a campaign, uh, things become more and more complicated the more you use them, right? 
Like essentially, you don't have just a single block as you would have in a convention that you have the, the simple storyline, the characters know each other automatically and they just go and do the thing they're supposed to be doing. In a campaign, as you progress deeper and deeper, things become more and more complicated. There are a lot more things to tackle. And in three hours, by the time I remembered all the things we have to tackle, then you have to stop playing. Unfortunately, I only play about four hours each session because my uh, my storyteller has a ton of cats and I'm popping Zyrtec like candy while I'm there. I do feel like this, this is, is why we need to get him on Discord. No cats on Discord. <laughs> I do feel like streamed games have, have changed the culture a little bit. I mean, particularly particularly with younger players, So, which is how a lot of players get in. So... Um, for example, I'm now doing uh, a campaign for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, so it's a new Saltmarsh campaign. And they give us two hours per session live, which is really short. I was shocked how we just did the first session yesterday and I was shocked how fast it went. Yeah, that's um, insane. It was crazy. And uh, our storyteller is amazing. He's a guy, the great GM from, from YouTube. And if you don't know him, he's incredible and definitely worth checking out. Um, but he'd planned this whole amazing, like, in media res start with uh, an undead kraken that rose up and started attacking the ship next to us. And we we're all level one players, so we were bricking it. Um, and all of this stuff was happening, and everything was happening so quick. And, and then suddenly the session was over. And um, I, I feel it's too brief. Two hours is, is too brief for me. But I understand that, you know, they have a schedule and they want to <laughs> keep things moving because uh, it's, it's all going live on Twitch. But I do think that streamed games have had this massive impact where that has become the norm. Because do you know what? If you're watching a game, two or three hours is plenty. Actually, I think that the streamed games had a much bigger impact to the gaming uh, community than we think. Because I think that when we were playing, I don't know, guys, I really don't know what your ages are, but uh, I'm 37. So I've been playing, started playing during the 1980s kind of thing. So uh, what? don't laugh. Don't laugh. Um, uh, I think that something we forget is that all the way to 2015, people were playing just in their home and maybe in a convention they will see some, how, how other people play. But playing was a very personal experience. It was actually, it, there were no rules. You were making the rules. Nobody knew how other groups were playing. And suddenly you go into this world that effectively it is uh, almost like or spectator sport, exactly. And now the rules are specific. This is how a session should be played. These are the jokes you're supposed to be doing. These are the standards that every storyteller should be kept on. And I remember specifically that I read an article about, how is this called? The, the guy? Matthew Mercer effect. Yeah, the Matthew Mercer, that he was actually very sad because he was saying, I cannot believe that people are trying to effectively make games and play like I do because I am playing for 20 years and you're starting right now. You cannot in any way believe that this is the way that you're supposed to be playing your games. And also game mastering is an experience is a creative expression. Like you're not supposed to be doing it like somebody else. Exactly. It's like saying, I want to draw like Picasso instead of I want to draw like me. Well, it is fair to say that some some artists would have started by saying I would like to draw like Picasso, but part of the whole deal was to create your own style after you essentially uh, gave uh, your um, your love to the people who inspired right, you. Right, and have fun. Which sometimes becomes very stressful and not that fun at all. We have so many storytellers that we have in the in our own Discord, uh, which are young people who are starting now to roleplay, and the amount of pressure they feel 
to aspire and to make so that they actually give a, a regular experience is mind-boggling. And I'm like, what are you doing to yourself? Like, like, what are you getting out of this if it's such a stressful thing? One problem we have, well, the Matt, the Matt, the Mercer effect. I mean, the guys, you know, I like the guy, but uh, we, a lot of people just have this thing with try to copy what the celebrities are doing. And it's, it's a problem America has had for a while. And you have to, you know, you, you have to break away this, you know, what he does is not realistic. He, we're, he's dealing with, you know, professional actors and we're not professional actors. You know, most of us are uh, amateur actors. Well, and it's more than that. It's not just professional actors and editing and all of that. It's also, for most of us, these are our friends. This is social time. This is us hanging out. Um, several of the tables that are real life tables, we eat together. We we do potlucks and things like that where we'll pick a theme and like, oh, we're doing Mexican and everybody's bringing stuff, right? This is social. It's supposed to be social. There's going to be days and games where... And it still happens, but in the old days, we used to literally have things where it was like, I had a really horrible day, and so-and-so did too, and we're all mad at whatever. So we decided to just play World of Darkness, Werewolf, go into the Umbra, and everything dies. I instead of what we were really doing, right? Playing Where Shark the Buffet. Right. Well, well sometimes. Old school murder hobos, right? Because everyone was in a mood, and that was what we chose to do, because this is social, and these are our friends, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a, it, we're, you know, you people in real life go off on enormous tangents. I mean, we, my last group a few weeks ago spent 30 minutes and we stream. We spent 30 minutes talking about how we were proud of the fact that one of the McDonald's locally was voted the most dangerous McDonald's in the nation. And it was a 30 minute joke that nobody outside the stream understood because they don't live here. Yeah. Well, and okay. then you spent twenty minutes explaining it to him. No, we we let him hang in. That's mean. So I would like to actually go back to uh, yes, Pex. I just saw it as well. So Pex is trying to um, veer us back to the content. So the question is uh, dealing with players who won't accept no for an answer. I want to play a drow in Dragonlance. Well, honestly, for that, that, that is the easy answer because the answer is you can, but they do not exist. So you do not exist. Let's go for the next character. I try to say yes. Whenever, Whenever I can, I can. anytime I can get a chance to say yes to my players, I try to say yes. Yes. Well, but can... when I say no, the answer is just no. The, yeah, but the question is how do you deal with people that they do not uh, accept that no for an answer? I think that it is a very hard dynamic to manage because in all in all truth and in reality, the people around your table are supposed to be your friends and they're supposed to be uh, uh, people who want to have the shared experience with everybody else. I think that people who say just no, uh, or they, sorry, they won't accept a no for an answer, then they kind of miss the point of the fact that you're supposed to be playing together and not for them to do whatever they want. Make sense? Well... And I think part of it's also in attitude and things like that. Because when I say no on a regular table, nobody really questions me anymore. Because there's probably some reason. If I won't give you the reason, then it has something to do with the story, right? If I say no and you're like, why? And I give you a reason, then that was it. 
but I, I expect players to be adults. Sometimes you're told no, and as an adult, that's just how it works, right? Like, right, like I, I, I don't, I don't know that I've had to deal with someone who just wants to argue and argue and argue on a point all that much. It's been forever. I think I had one guy, and he wanted to argue, and I'm just like, because that's not how the game works, and that's there you go. <laughs> Temper tantrums are real. And I actually had the weirdest one um, about a year and a half, two years ago. I've never seen this before. The guy didn't like something. We talked about it at the table. There was reasons. Everybody was in agreement except for apparently him, which when the table has seven, eight people and you're the only person who doesn't agree, you're just outvoted, right? And literally he sent me an email that when you printed it was like three plus pages. It was like three and a half pages of how I suck, every individual player sucks, the group sucks, like this whole horrible thing. Then he proceeded to explain to me how he was the only one who was following the story. And I'm just sitting here going, I'm the GM. I'm pretty sure I know what the story is, but okay. But I have never in my life seen that. He didn't talk to me. He just sent me this like three and a half, four page email of I suck, they suck, everybody sucks, the group sucks, and he quit. I've never seen this before. Oh, two months later, he started nosing around some of the other players, seeing if he could come back to the game. Like, no, but is that a real thing? Like, I've never heard of this before. I've never seen this. Like, what is this shit? Uh, Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. I I think sometimes one of the things you want to do is find though, if you have the player who won't accept no, or want something, you, there's two different kinds. There's the player who won't say accept no because they're highly competitive. That RPGs and gaming isn't about all of us winning, it's about me winning. And I'm going to figure out a way to manipulate whatever it is to allow me to win at your expense. There's the other type of player who is wants something and sometimes you can steer them in a different direction. For the instance, I want to be a Jedi Knight. Well, there is no Jedi Knight. It doesn't exist. But maybe I can steer you to something that might be acceptable to you, that you might say, okay, that may not be exactly what I was looking for or what I had my mind on, but I can live with that, and it does fit into my concept. So it really depends upon what type of player it is. Is it this uber-competitive person is it the person who just wants to be the center of attention? Uh, yes, unless the action focuses around me and my character, I'm unhappy. Uh, I need to be that guy who is at the center of it. So and I tend to see that a lot because I'm from the Northeast, and a lot of people are very competitive. Um, you know, you can't play a game of Monopoly without them whipping out rules they think should be put in or anything like that. So... It really just depends upon trying to figure out why the person is unwilling or doesn't want to initially accept no for an answer. And, I think- and, and occasionally you just have to tell a player that maybe this is not the game for them. Uh, I have had a, uh, in many, many years, uh, I've had multiple players that just wanted to change the game world so they could fit in their super special character. Like you said, I want to play. The guy goes, oh, I want to play a Jedi. Well, we're playing Twilight 2000. That's not exactly in the realm of possibility. I think that um, 
something that Tom touched on there is really valuable, which is, uh, so I'm from a theatre background. I'm actually, I trained as an opera singer um, before I started running Wild Anvil. So um, one of the most valuable things from that, as far as GMing is concerned, from my experience, is the yes and principle. So yes, you can be something like a drow. We don't have drows in this world, but you could do this, 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 or you could do this, this, this. So providing acceptable alternatives or providing yes and you're an alien to this world that came through a portal, for example. So finding a way to make it work for them. The other way I think and I have used as a GM is saying you can do that, but it is a DC 25 skill check. You can try. Of course you can try. But some things are not going to be possible because it doesn't make sense. Can you um, can you pick the pocket of the king while you're standing, you know, watched by 30 guards? You can definitely try. You, of course you can try. Anyone can try anything. But it's going to be really hard and you will have to deal with those consequences. There's a good lesson about uh, learning to deal with your con the consequences of your action. And I think that is true in both the real world and the storytelling world. And uh, one thing I wanted to say, in fact, to what um, uh, I think Tom was saying before, uh, it was the idea that... Oh, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm tired. Consequences. No, it was before... It's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're talking about essentially uh, the players and the, the whole idea of the Jedi, effectively. Yeah. Uh, and I was saying that we are creative people. We pride ourselves on being creative people. If Jedi's don't exist and you have an alternative, work with your player together and find some that can, in fact, fit them. And you both make, like, you, you both you make, make compromise. Yeah. Exactly. You both make compromises, though, in order to shape something that's going to be even possibly more awesome because you are sure. creative people and you can create something that will be really. So, no, you can't be a Jedi, but yes, you can have a particular brand of magic that is only available to a certain sect, which is. I wouldn't even start with that. I would start with why do you want to be a Jedi? Because mm. when you say I want to be a Jedi, is it the sword? Is it the cloak? Is it the honor code? Is yeah. it uh, the fact they can actually do magic tricks, like uh, parlor trick kind of thing? What is that makes you want to be a Jedi? So and let's exactly, and let's find what that means in this world, in this setting, in this campaign, whatever this is. Yeah. And you do have the players that say if it's in the book, they can play it. That's one issue. Nope. Because the book flat out says that anything that doesn't work for your world or your setting or your game is an out thing. So you want to argue that it says earlier in the book that I can delete anything from the book that doesn't work. So that's not an argument. I know. I know. Oh, but that's how I usually handle it. You know, I did years ago had a guy who it was a con game and we were I was running Bubblegum Crisis. This tells you how old I am. I'm running Bubblegum Crisis at a convention. First time I'd ever ran at a con. So every other time I'd played, it had always been friends. So I've never had this. These are people I don't know things. Right. And this guy just sat there and he kept I, he wants to. um he wanted to put cyberware in, which you can do in that game. The problem is that certain things stack and certain things don't, and it would have taken an hour to two hours just to figure that out for people who had never played it. And he spent, and I didn't know how to deal with it at that point. Like I had never had this, never dealt with it. And the guy was really rude and aggressive about it. And he basically ruined the entire game for everybody else. 
It was it was awful. I'm surprised I'm I ever ran a con game again. I'm sorry. There was complications from the cyber surgery. You didn't make it. Yeah. See, now I would have said something like that, or I would have just said, this is what it is. Because I tried to explain it to him that it was going to be very hard for the other players who were new to the setting to know what stacked and what didn't, and then character creation would have taken forever, right? And he was like, but I know, so it's fine. And I'm like, that's not fair to everybody else. So one of the things I've learned is is now I do pre-gens because character creation takes forever for people sometimes. And two, I would have just looked at him and been like, I'm sorry, maybe this isn't the right table for you. Well, that is the beauty about what we do. We learn every time we play, right? We become better every time we play a game, one way or another. Everything I learned about dealing with problem players, I learned from paranoia. <laughs> Before or after you died the seventh time? Seventh? My record was 495. Shoot. Oh we my were God. playing Collect Call of Cthulhu. I killed 72 of them just trying to turn off a uh, record that was skipping on the word Haster. <laughs> oh, you gotta love that game. We regret to, friend computer, we regret to inform you that Happy Laffy Fun Fizz, the refreshing alternative to Bouncy Bubbly Beverage, not that Bouncy Bubbly Beverage needs a refreshing alternative, reacts badly to laser fire. That was the best line of the entire convention when they found out their soda, when you shoot it with a laser, acts as a fuel air bomb. I, again, like I said, I try say yes. And I think that that was one of the things that um, one of you were touching on. I try to say yes, yes, but, yes, however. But I try to say yes whenever I can. If I can't say yes, then I try to explain why the answer is a no. If I won't, then it's usually because there's something to do with the game and you don't get to know that yet. If that, that doesn't that work, doesn't then I'm just going to be no. And that's just it. And there's always the stop at your being creepy line. Or, again, we go back to, I think you said it, maybe this just isn't the right table for you. Right. And I don't and think I that don't... that's being a dick. Or, what is your second choice? Just to steer them away from the idea. Like, if, if, they're, if they're not utterly fixated on it, which, of course, sometimes they are, just to be like, okay, so you can't do that. But what's your second choice? What's what's another thing that you would like to do? What's another uh, alternative to that? I like that. It's it's similar to the yes, but however. I like that. If that's is there something else that you might consider? I like that. I, that's nice. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, sometimes they will just be like, No, I only want to be a Jedi. But do you know what? If you can if you can be like, Well, there aren't any Jedi's and here are some reasons why that doesn't work. But what else would you like to play? Because you're a creative person. And of course, you never be afraid to flatter them. You're such all a, a Jedi is, is All a Jedi is is a wizard. Let's go look at wizard stuff. Right, exactly. That's the yes and approach. But if for some reason you're playing a no magic campaign, for example, and they desperately want to have magic, and there's no way around it, then, okay, you're such a creative person. What else would you find interesting? How else would you... Like, what, what characters have you seen in movies that you would like to play? Um, these kinds of things. So finding a way to steer their creativity and steer their interests to a facet that will work for everyone. I think that's, and obviously it's manipulative, but I think it can be a very positive manipulation for getting things to work together. And of course, if in doubt, you could just poison their soda. Like that, there's always that option. Hey, hey, hey. 
We already discussed this. GMs are all manipulative liars at heart. We're just very good at making you think we're nice. <laughs> yeah, totally. But um, yeah. So, yeah, steering steering their ideas, I think, is is good. And uh, I like it. Being into their interests as well. So hey, but you're uh, you're really interested in combat. So why don't you do this? Or, you know, you have all of this previous knowledge from your I don't know research into conspiracy theories. What if you played something like this? And like trying to if you know them, trying to key into that as chemistry. Well. There's no magic. Let's try alchemy or chemistry. Oh, I like that. That's really good. Or you can be the guy holding uh, manning the artillery piece. Yeah. Or super science. Super science. Yeah. What can I side you into? Yeah, totally. Like, like you know, subverting their ideas and refining their ideas and remolding their ideas rather than just... I think a wall is is the last recourse. Like, when you have tried everything else, um, and there's not much to say at that point, it, then it's really just about, like, you do your own personal charisma rule and try and get out of this with everybody's dignity intact. But, um, yeah, I think the, the most the most interesting question with what do you do when when you say have to say no to players is how can you not say no to players like how many different things can you go through what different ideas can you have before you have to say look this is not working well that's when you just play riffs so everything's allowed savage worlds because of the way that one's set up you can do that too Probably and I like Savage Worlds more than Rifts. So. Everyone loves everything more than Rifts. Rifts is the, I know. the, 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 the abusive ex-girlfriend you just keep going back to. because you I know. don't go back to it, though. I, I played, and it's actually I need to, because I have a rule that before I decide I hate a game, I have to play it at least under two different GMs. Because it could be that that particular GM, right? Like, so you should always try it under at least two different GMs. And I only played it under one GM, and I hated it, and I was so annoyed and frustrated I never played again. Uh, there's a... Yeah, I've had a few games like that. Yeah, I had Numenera like that. I was about to really? say that. I was... Okay, see, like, I have... I wanted Numenera, and, and I have the book, and I've never gotten a chance to get anyone to play it with me. And I have so looked forward to playing it, so what did they do wrong? It gets boring quickly. Oh, really? How so? I mean, yes. because you're in this super fantastic world with, you know, walking battleships and right. dimensional T-Rexes and your character starts with a sword and a crossbow. And there's I don't know about the second edition, but the first edition, it said nobody's interested in, in uh, reverse engineering all this super massive tech. Plus, it's a Monty Cook game. So you've got the nano and then everybody else. OK. So the GMs took it way too literal instead of going, yeah, but that's not what would be fun because I don't want to start with a sword and a bow. The problem is, I mean, is that's what the book provides you. You know, you have to, if you want to go further than that, you really, the book doesn't go far enough in all this uh, stuff. You literally, when you're looking at the equipment list, the best weapons are sword and crossbow. Are you kidding? No, I'm not. It, it was also very okay. resource management oriented too. So you had to like. I know a lot of players don't like that. Yeah, it was basically like uh, it felt like being a coach in football, and you only have one challenge. And boy, when do I use it? So it was kind of oh, like. Oh wow. Yeah, I was so, like, oh, you do you things, guys, take points off. 
Did you guys play, and I don't remember which way it was titled, there's Firefly and Serenity, one was the first one, and then there's the second one that they did, which yeah. uses the specialty dice. The first one, because of how the book presented it, even if you killed a bad guy, then like, you know, the, the authorities were out to get you. Like it didn't matter and they would come get you. So you pretty much, they put a kibosh on killing anyone and there's not really monsters in it. So it became very research management as far as I'm doing this run for money because I need gas and I need to fix the thing on the ship. And I found that most of the times that I tried it, the players, they didn't like that. They want to be able to kill, you know, the bad guy and shoot him or put him in through the engine like Mal did in the show. And since there were no monsters, I finally ended up saying that I think it's best played using Traveler. Keep the setting as the setting for the most part, but use Traveler as a system because it opened up more opportunities and then put monsters on planets that weren't showed in the TV show. My players just, I'll be honest, they hated the rule system. I mean, they like, they love the setting, but the dice mechanics were just wonky. It, well, in the first one, yes. yeah, it was weird because what I think they were trying to do was make it more open as far as trying to decide, you know, I could put this with that. And I think they were trying to make it more open filling, but instead somehow it just felt wonky and wrong and questioning instead of on point. Does that make sense? Yeah, and uh, another mechanic that they hated was, the, for whatever reason, back when they were putting games out like that, they had this thing for spending experience points for uh, roll bonuses rather than spending experience points to increase stuff. Okay. So if you started spending your XP, you weren't you were hurting yourself in the long term. Ooh, I cannot, and it, it is a pet peeve. Costing players their XP when they create something is ridiculous why the freak do so many games want to try to do this oh yes i spend all these points getting good at crafting and i take the feet and i do this but oh it's going to cost me two thousand experience points to make the wand rather, well, rather it is a stupid system but i think the reason they're doing it and i think that 3.5 started that in fact and that was the first system i know it started before 3.5 Okay, I mean, that's where I first essentially was exposed to it, but I right. think the point is that they wanted to be able to balance, so effectively they say, it would give you that super super weapon, you have to have some way integrate that into the process of building up your character, and I completely agree with you, it's it's stupefying. Well, they still had to pay for the parts, yeah, they still the had to pay to get the levels, and I understand that they didn't want some particular character having 30,000 wands. But yeah. since they have to pay for the parts and you can, as a GM, very easily say you're having trouble finding this component or you're going to have to still roll to craft it. Like I, I'm running an 1879 campaign and the weird scientists get to put their spells into a device and then the device does the thing. So you would think they could just sit there and make 7 billion shields, right? But what you do is, is you simply... It's hard to find the stuff. They still have to find the stuff. They have to buy it. They have to steal it. They have to do whatever. Then it takes time to make the stuff. And the harder, it gets harder, the bigger, the badder, the more often you, you know, and you just scale it so that they can't do 7,000 shields. But I can't stand the idea that they're spending their XP on it because that just, just 
seems like it's punishing them for even making the attempt to buy the stuff in the first place. I think that we all agree on that. I think it's time to do product promotion, apparently, according to Pex. Uh, shall we start from the top to bottom? Let's do it. Andy? Why don't you lead the way, Andy? Actually, I think one of you actually rolled the four. Unless you guys want to go together. No, let's go from the top of the chat to the bottom. It'll be easier. It's going to be faster. Just go ahead. Okay. Just All right. Okay, so you can reach me on FASA's stuff. You can reach me on Twitter through FASA. You can reach me through my email at FASA. Then there's my personal Discord, my personal Twitter, my personal Twitch. I play games very badly, and I curse a lot during playing of games. So if you want to watch someone play very badly and curse, then you can watch me on Twitch. But I'm very easy to reach. As far as products go, of course, we have Earth Dawn. And not that we've said said this, but we are so super close to announcing the next book. So, so close. So, so the new Game Boy RPG? The new Earth Dawn book is going to be out probably within... Well, okay, we'll be announcing it probably within the next two to four weeks. But I have them under kind of lockdown for the most part. Because we have finally finished the, the evil Kickstarter from long ago. And we are now moving forward and getting new stuff out. And I'm very excited about the next book and the next two after that, which... Wish me luck. We will have out probably by the end of the year. So Earth Dawn is just moving along great. So happy with the guys and the team. That's it. I'm done. If you don't mind, I do have to run. So if I could go next, because I have to catch up. Yeah, go for it. So, thank you so much. Uh, right now we have the Sea King's Malice on Kickstarter. Um, and that is doing well. I think it's about a week in. Oh, there we go. So it is a Sawagan-based adventure that's written by Alex Kammer, who also runs Game Hole Con. If you've never been to Game Hole Con, I strongly suggest you go. It is one of, I wouldn't say the one of, it is the most organized convention there is I've ever been to. It runs like clockwork. Um, it's, it's a pretty decent venue. It's in Madison, Wisconsin, So and it's in November. And but this has been he's been working on this for a while and it's our current Kickstarter right now. And um it's got about twenty-one days left to go. So and Pex and everyone, thanks for letting me be on today. I do have to run, I do have to catch a bus and it won't work for me. I wish it would. So uh, have a great rest of the day and the rest of the afternoon. Thank you very much, Don. Peace out. Peace out. Okay. Great one. All right, I think this is our time. Bye. Okay. So we are World Anvil. Well, we're Janet and Demetrius. We're we Dan made World Anvil yeah, well, by accident. It feels like we are World Anvil. Right <laughs> At this point, yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, we're running a goal building, campaign management, and player uh, player character manager system, yeah. which will soon be also a way for authors to be able to write their stories and to disseminate them and also to manage them Yeah, and many other things. Um, we have just launched Heroes, yeah. which is our new campaign manager. And we have some really flashy animations there for you to see if you go to YouTube. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and at this point, 
one thing that I would like to say to all of you here, because that is important, is that uh, we're in the process of adding systems into the campaign manager. So essentially the ability for people to have character sheets of their own systems in uh, Heroes. Yeah. So if you do have a system and you would like to see it and you would like the players that play the system to be able to manage the campaign using World Danville, we would love to talk to you about it. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing that I would add is that um, World Anvil is really for everyone. That means all genres, all systems. It also means we have everyone from um, professional authors and publishers and professional GMs using it, right down to people who just want to make a great game for their players or want to write a great book. We literally have the from the 14-year-old uh, boy who runs his first campaign to people who run professional uh, campaigns for 140 people and they sell the product. Or oh, 700 people, in fact. Or, or okay, then. Oh, yeah, of course, sure, yeah. For 700 people, and effectively, they use Goldamble to monetize one way or another. Right, exactly. So, it, yeah, it's, it is orc friendly. Goldamble well, is orc friendly. It's also dinosaur friendly because I am secretly a dinosaur. Indeed. And lately, mermaid friendly. Yes, it has to be mermaid friendly because I'm playing a mermaid now. Yes. I think that's all for me. I think that's, a, that's yes. a, I think we've rabbited enough. Uh, oh, and uh, thank you for letting us be here. This has been really fun and really interesting. So I guess that's me now. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm actually not selling anything uh, as right now because I've just been writing a book. It's a very nice book. Uh, I was converting the Mistara setting over to 5th edition in the... Uh, hopes that, uh, well, three years ago, in the hopes that Wizards was about to open up all the settings like they said they were going to. Um, still waiting. Uh, so I'm right now trying to get it all put up so uh, they will take notice of me and say, hey, this is an awesome book. Um, let me see if I can put up a page. It's uh, so if anybody ever wants to talk about it, I have a YouTube channel. I've also got a Twitter feed. Uh, if anybody wants to bring it in front of Watsi and say, hey, this is awesome. Yeah, there's the back page. Uh, it's 224 pages, full color. Uh, it's been play tested all uh, to pieces. The art is all original. Um, you know, this is something I did because I was angry over a divorce. Well, at least something productive came out of it, I guess. Yeah, I, I can't. I, I, I had to direct the anger somewhere. All right, I'll put up a link for your YouTube here. Yeah, I'm just trying to find some of the other art because um, one of my artists is Greek, and actually two of them are. And they, uh, the, I ran into some issues with um, them putting up traditional Greek manly art, and which apparently is not conducive to some people in fifth edition. But um, yeah, I'll be uh, showcasing this off at some conventions and uh, just trying to raise the awareness because I think fifth edition needs more settings. Do we have anybody else? I think we have come to all of them, Pex. No, that's everybody. So now it's our last segment of the show for live Q&A. So I'll unmute the audience.
You can either ask your question live or you can type it out. One of us will read it if you don't have a mic or don't want to talk to us directly. Take me just a moment to unmute everyone. Definitely check out Heroes. Looks awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That's the cover art. That looks awesome, too. It better for She looks like Buffy, completely. It's great. I love it. Uh, it's Morgan Ironwolf. Uh, she's probably a photo bash of about five different actresses. And uh, the uh, I was trying to get somebody to capture the old classic Jeff D's, and I found out artists can't draw 80s hair today. That's pretty funny. Accurate. All right, everybody should be unmuted. So if you got a question for our awesome host here, feel free to ask him. And uh, just to answer uh, Gargamond, that's actually a Thule, which uh, was an old D&D creature from uh, way back. And they stole the uh, creature design from Blix from Legends. Unashamedly stole. So earlier we were talking about uh, online tabletop games. How well, I guess dogs are going to make an appearance in my ears. Um, if you can hear them, I apologize. So what what would be a milestone, I guess you could say, that you would... Um, see coming in the near future for online tabletops. So like VTTs, you mean? Or like online tabletop games? Yeah, so... Like... Roll20... But... On steroids. I don't know how... I don't, I don't have... I don't have the words to explain that correctly, apparently. Okay, that sounds super cool. Um, we're actually planning a, an integration with... Well, we're, we're releasing an API, essentially. Yes, we'll be opening an API, and we are working already with some people for it, but that yeah. will be an open API for people who have development access, essentially, anyway. Right, so um, we are looking at potentially integrating with, with VTTs in the future, which would essentially create a tabletop on steroids. You know, so you'd have all the World Anvil functionality, or at least some of the World Anvil functionality, um, and then you'd have the VTT experience as well. So you'd have that whole world-building homebrew side, the whole flexible character side, the whole quick planning for the GM side, but then that would be integrated in a VTT as well. So that would be that would be one answer, I guess. I'll get the stock answer here. Oh, it's 20 years out, but VR technology. I just got a idea like that, Pex, and it was literally like, "Oh yeah, you 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 just wear a goggle, a headset, and keyboard or something, and you type in whatever role you make, or you know what I'm saying, basically." But and then there's a 3D world you get to see. I'd really like to see that. Yeah, but, yeah, but the, the typical answer of when that'll be available is always 20 years. So, there you go. I think we need cryopods. Fair. Somebody needs cryopods so that we can go and 
put ourselves in stasis, and then come out when we have really strong VTT support. That'd be awesome. Well, I mean, the issue with cryopods is that there's no guarantee it won't cause severe brain trauma. That's too late. That's oh, I mean, that's kind of the primary reason that most people haven't been willing to consider it just yet. That and the difficulty of keeping a human alive with vegetative functioning like that is in such a small, self-contained unit is a little tricky. That was a good question, though. Uh, does anybody have another question? I got one uh, for Janet and Demetrius here. Uh, what What's the number one feature in the new uh, campaign manager that you like the most or, or most excited about? I don't like anything right now. Dimitri's so sick of it. <laughs> so Dimitri's literally for the last month. Um, so I, I mentioned this, but uh, I was asked to do a stream for Wizards of the Coast as one of the players in a new campaign, which is commissioned by them. It is incredibly exciting. Um, but we also figured that actually we knew we were going to be releasing Heroes, so we'd better get it out by the time I started the stream. So it's been a mad dash to get this thing done. Dimitri has been working, literally, he's had no days off in two months, not a single day off. He's coded or bug fixed every single day. So Dimitri is completely sick of this thing now and cannot give you a sensible answer, <laughs> which is why he sounds like Eeyore right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would have to say that um, my favorite thing about it is the new session planning in the GM side, because I am so looking forward to quick planning my sessions, to just grabbing in my, my ship from World Anvil, grabbing in a couple of uh, YouTube videos that I can embed so I have my sound, a couple of um, images that, so I have my pictures, and I'm done in 20 minutes, or 15, or 10 if I'm quick. And I'm, I'm just ready. I'm to really looking fair, forward to that. That is going to be possibly the first wave of ways of seeing somebody using somebody else's world and that's actually quite exciting. That is something I'm really looking forward to implement at some point in the future. Because if I find a way to say uh, that apart from this world, you can also look at this world for articles, since you are just going to have access to the information, that would be the best way of doing it. Instead of playing a game, for example, in the X world of Y person without being your own world. As an outsider that's barely touched it, the thing that excites me the most is um, there seem to be a lot of campaign management softwares that have come and gone over the years. and But there's never been anything really solid for players where you can go and build your character or your party or your, you know, the world from the, from the player's side. And so for me, that's what's really kind of cool about it. I'm looking forward I'm to looking seeing forward. how it all plays out and integrates with the uh, campaign manager now. Oh, me too. <laughs> but uh, there will be. There's a lot more to come where this came. This came from. In fact, uh, when I'm saying that I had another sixty ideas, 
and right now I have another 180 from people who submitted ideas, which are separate. Yeah. yeah, which are separate from ones I had because when I find one that is effectively the same as I had, I say thank you very much, but this is already submitted. Yeah. Uh, so I do have uh, 60 plus 180 ideas of things to be added to heroes, yeah. just to heroes. Not all done, all done. We have about 750. That's a different question altogether. So yeah, uh, I can. I will probably be working and in, in involving that for the next 10 years. Probably. You you will have cryopods. We have World Anvil to keep us busy. We'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Job All right. security. I have a question here from DOS Machine from Lost Relic Industries. And I feel awkward reading this, but this has probably been answered. How does World Anvil handle IP if, say, a publisher were to upload content? Does World Anvil have a claim to that IP, or is it still considered the original property of the author? Or does a license, okay. does a license be So, I'll make it easy. Uh, first of all, everything I'll tell you right now, you can find in the terms of service and copyright in the website, just to be clear that we're not just saying one thing and mean the other one. That is part of uh, a public record. But the answer is, we hold no IP to your content whatsoever. The only thing we are asking permission for from the people who are taking part in the website is the, the ability to modify and present the content, which effectively we need to make the thumbnails for your images and to present the work to you and to those that you choose to show to. That is pretty much it. We are creators, both of us. Janet is a writer and I'm a storyteller who writes worlds. We couldn't do it any other way because we understand the importance of IP. And we, in fact, are here to protect IP if it's possible. And we will provide records to people who come to us and saying, by the way, Person X claims that they have created that before me. I have created that in Goldanville in October 2017. Can you provide me with that? And the answer to this is yes. We can actually show you uh, 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 how do you call hmm? proof proof of uh, essentially the content being created. The time was created. So we can show we can show records that prove when you wrote this article, when you started this article, and this kind of thing. So we will go out to bat for you to help people. Um, to help people get their IP safe because we think it's super important. So we claim nothing from you except the ability to essentially resize your images so we can create thumbnails, which we have to do for the functionality of the site. But we're not going to run off with anything. We're not going to claim anything. We're, honestly, we've got our own ideas. <laughs> I'm sure your ideas are great, but we've got our own shit to do. <laughs> so yeah, everything that you put on there is completely safe. Um, if you choose to put it private, that means not even we can see it. That's yes, the other thing. Because some of the basic information about the world itself and your account are encoded on, under SHA, uh, SHA2, essentially, and SHA256 encryption, which means I cannot access your account unless I have your password. And that is a huge pain in the butt, especially when you're doing debugging, because if somebody has a bug in their system, it is super hard to find it out. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> But we go to these lengths because we know how important it is for creators to have um, to have privacy and to feel safe in that privacy. One of the reasons that people use our service is because A, they can create things and choose what is seen and what is not seen, and B, because it's backed up on the cloud 15 times, so they're never going to lose it. Eight. Okay. Eight. In eight different CDN servers, but eight, yeah. Sure. Um, I was exaggerating, but actually I wasn't too far off. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so basically, we understand this. We are creators ourselves. So that is our line on that. And if you ever have questions about this, you can always email us. You can always call us. We are super open about this. Um, so yeah, absolutely feel free to get in contact if you want to know more about this. 
And as a side note, Frog God Games is uploading their entire IP and world setting into World Anvil for use of the younger generation. Or older. Or technology-driven people. Whoop. And Jan yeah. and Dimitri are the best people to work with, so I encourage it. And that makes it a lot easier for things like what Three Orcs has posted in the uh, the chat, where because the IP will be available to everybody, there's not any IP issues, and you can run a public world and use the IP from Frog God without any fear of lawyers coming knocking on the door. Right. So um, one of the things I would like to talk about very quickly with regards to IP is if people are using other people's IP. So, for example, we had one user who had completely copy-pasted a Wizards of the Coast volume into World Anvil, which obviously is not fine. That content belongs to somebody. Um, and they just put it up publicly. So Wizards of the Coast came to us very politely and said, there is copyright infringement. Here is a DMCA. And we notified the person and they took it down. If you are homebrewing, this is not going to be a problem. Yeah, It's only if you are using things that are actually copyrighted. Yeah, effectively, there are many rules that, for example, use the campaigns from PDF edition, and there is no problem unless you effectively literally just take a photo of the map and put it up there. Uh, if you create your own map or you actually expand on the copy, there is no problem at all. Yeah, absolutely. And ditto, the SRD obviously is free for everyone. Yeah. And if you want to homebrew your own stat blocks, that's fine. You can do that. That's okay. Or create completely your own. Exactly. Or can create completely new ones. It's only a problem if you are doing like legit copying. And the minute you put that private, it's for private use. It's not an IP infringement. And you're absolutely fine. You can disseminate that with your players. It's like sharing a copy of the book. Nobody has an issue with that. I got a question for Andy here. Yes. What can you tell us about some of the highlights of the new book that's coming out, if you can tell us anything? So, I will say that it's a. What to get it? If you follow Earth Dawn, we just recently also did um, Questers about this time last year. So setup of this is similar. It's more things that you can add and do to your characters. I will say that. I will say that, oh heck. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's the Paths book. I will say that because, you know. And so I'm very, very excited about the Paths book because it gives you more character options. And after that... We're going to go and go into Iopos. That's the book after it probably is Iopos, which is mostly written. Which if you know the world in the world setting, Iopos is this really interesting, bad place where um, think Orwellian, like everything seems nice and happy, but it's actually very dark and very controlled. So it's a it's a very interesting setting, and it creates some um, things that will start to trigger to happen in in throughout Barsave. So, yeah. So we're adding more character options in the next book, and then we're advancing the story, sort of the start to it in the book after that. Earth Dawn. Um, for those of you guys who are old school, Shadowrun, Earth Dawn, both work on the idea that the story advances or should be advancing. So like first edition was at a certain time period 
by the time you get to fourth edition, it is so many years later and things happen in the world. So it's not um, a stagnant world setting. So I'm very thrilled with that because the world is altering and changing and expanding. And that's all I'm going to say, but thank you for asking me. Um, all right, last call for questions. How is Peck so awesome? That is absolutely a thing that we've asked that and talked about that because he really is. Just the most awesome. Well, he keeps control of all this stuff and herds all the cats on here. Right? Right. And he GMs. Right, exactly. Um, he's always super positive. Like, I've spoken to him at his, because we're in London, right? So our time zone is whack right, right. compared to everyone else's. Wait, so, wait. I've Wait, with that accent, you're in London? Yeah. I'm so surprised. Are you shocked? I'm teasing. You I'm shocked. shocked. I have like I'm two, three authors who are in England, so I'm actually really good with the time difference there. You oh, are yeah, so ahead of me. So it is 5.06 there. Yeah, that's right. Um, mm -hmm. But I end up talking to Pex at like five in the morning sometimes, and he's just always happy and always friendly and always on the ball. I am not friendly at five in the morning. I'm really oh no so impressed. Two a.m. He's happy and nice. I don't know if that man sleeps. I'm really not sure of it. In about four hours a night. I need more sleep than that. I like need twice as much sleep as that. Me too. There's so much rest I can get. But Pex is always nice. He's always happy. He's always polite. Like, how could you not love Pex? <laughs> Thanks, guys. You're welcome. Actually, what we should try to talk about is, has anybody not liked Pex? See, that would be more interesting. I feel yes. like if he's ever GM'd a game and gave someone an STD to fuck with them, they probably wouldn't love him too much. <laughs> and I know okay, that's like a well, very serious and thought-out statement, okay. but I've been wondering like, how GMs and players handle... I've done it. I've done it. Sev I gave a GM an STD. Oh, that's game. fucking hilarious. Cause he, okay. So we, I had this player and every time we get to a new town, literally I go and I find the brothel. Okay, whatever. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to roll to see if I can get her to do it for free. Really? You went to a brothel and now you're trying to talk the prostitutes into doing it for free. If she gives it to Every him for free, time. I feel like that'd just be a guaranteed swamp dick disease. Yep. Well, and, and like, if he had done it once, it could have been funny, but it was every game, every town with this dude. Every freaking time. So I finally sat there and I'm like, you know, you keep having illicit affairs with prostitutes. You are going to eventually run into stuff. There's going to start being a percentage that you could catch something. Eventually. And he was like, Burn. Yeah, sure, right, whatever. And so he kept it up, so I ca started rolling. And there's an entire book, a uh, book of evil. Oh, by book. Hold on, I'll remember the name. You can book just of read a medical book. No, well, no, Book of Vile Darkness even has rules for it. 
there's a bunch of rules out there if you're really wanting to do that kind of thing. But this is one of the few that's published, and it actually is weird because it gets into the open game license and some changes that they tried to make after this one came out because uh, Wizards of the Coast wasn't really happy with this fairly adult-oriented book because it goes into um, addiction and drugs and STDs and like there's a there's like a, a uh, how to put this politely have a happy moment spell there's i think yeah i have a happy moment that you can put on a group of people spell like there's all sorts of stuff in it hey that was just on an episode of doom patrol was it oh i haven't finished doom patrol yet I'm like really close. I think I'm like two, three episodes till I end it. Flex but yes, the wrong muscle. Honestly, that is the most human use of magic I've ever heard. Because do you know what? If you can do something magical, the first person a human is going to do is try and use it for some weird sex stuff. Like, no, actually, like the internet, but it's legit. I have a character who used to use the one as a distraction. So like the thief wants to get in, but there's a guard. You just have him have a happy moment, and while he's paying attention to that, it gave the thief rogue a bonus to sneak in. It's best thing best. ever. And then oh the God, guy's not even mad. I guess on like sleep, it works on elves too, right? So you got it works on everybody. Yeah. So I wasn't even thinking about sex. I was just thinking about diseases and how people would handle those in a game long term, oh. like cancer. And oh. How it's degenerative and robs someone of the use of their body and how it translates in game. That's all. This is just equally as fun of a topic. So. Yeah. I, thanks. Exactly. Hey, he right. Sex, he said an STD. So STD implies sex. I'm sorry, but it does. But yes, I totally gave. He he ended up with one, and then he it became a um a side quest that he had to figure out how to um get rid of it. He did after that quit going. I go to a brothel. I talk her. Yeah, and just like I'm like, just think it in your head. You don't have to tell me about it. I don't want to know. Personally, I would have given him. Two. He did not become Visits? a eunuch. Oh, damn. Yeah. That would have been hilarious. I wish I'd thought of that, but I don't know how I could have done that without being like a vindictive GM. Like on the STD, I, I told him and he kept doing it and I just started rolling the percentage. So that was on him. I don't know how I could have made him a eunuch without like coming off vindictive. I mean... You could have railroaded it. Yeah, gangrene. Well, actually, I don't think gangrene would fit in this situation. Wait, wait. Can you have gangrene of the penis? Is that a thing? It's. Wait, now I got to look that up. I got to look that up. Hold on. It's tissue death. I mean, it's not a. It's anything. I thought gangrene came from uh, trauma. No. Okay. Um, In the old days. Don't look it up. Oh, God. It, it, it's actually, um, it's basically like a blood poisoning issue and then you circulation and the tissue dies and, and necropsies. But I never okay. thought about getting it in the penis. So now I got to look that up. Look what you guys did. I got to look up that. Well, I mean, there's a whole host of not only diseases, but just infections that can kill and debilitate in such a wonderful way. Like there's like a specific type. I mean, you can give someone syphilis and that'll make them go crazy. That's what killed Lovecraft's dad. <laughs> That's what syphilis? killed Al Capone. Yeah. Um, 
Teresa's. They also thought it killed um, Notre Dame, wasn't it? Or somebody else. There was like a big named one that they thought did too. Napoleon, maybe? Yeah, they know Napoleon died from it. Now, now you guys are all guys informed. from that era, the leaders, they died because they were a bit loose with their dicks. Pardon in my language. If I remember correctly, syphilis was brought over from the New World, so they called it the French disease. It came from fucking an animal, I'm pretty sure. Like most sexually transmitted diseases did. And that's really only stuff we can look on at our ancestors and shame for. Alright. I like how we're going to end on STDs. This is fantastic. Um, and animal sex. Sure. Uh, <laughs> any, do any of our hosts have any last things like to say before we conclude the podcast? Thank you for having us. It was I'll lovely start. meeting you guys and learning more about um, World Anvil. I'll try yeah, to we're trying to keep learning about your projects and, and lovely to meet you guys. Sorry, Glenn. My well, um yeah. my push to talk is really terrible and it I, I never know when it's actually gonna engage. So I keep interrupting people. I can't apologize enough for that. It's okay. I was just saying I'll try to be awake next time. I'm I've been chugging back caffeine here. Thank you for letting me come back on, even though I apparently make things go to uh don't look up those sentiments. I don't care, we don't have any censorship here. But until next time.